Hi, it's Jamie. And I'm Portia. And we are Just Two Pearls. Join us for Adventures in Pearls. A reading from Matthew, chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. And it reads, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Thus ends the reading. Jesus is a hot mess in the scripture. And I, because Jesus is a hot mess, I think it's important that we have some folks to come along and kind of help us with this. So I'm really excited to jump into a conversation, Jamie, about how Jesus is a hot mess, and he's a hot tail mess. So, yeah. For sure. So we are going to, Pearls, be studying this scripture for the next two episodes, not two weeks. We release bi-weekly, remember. But for the next two episodes, we are going to be discussing this Scripture. So this is part one of two of our Women of the New Testament series. And if you all enjoy it, then we will pursue this same type of series in the future. Um, but who is our first guest for this series, Portia? Our very first guest is none other than the Reverend, soon-to-be Dr. Jeremy L. Williams. He happens to be one of our bow ties. So, yeah, looking forward to hearing from him. Yep, and we are going to do that right now. All right, Pearls, and so today we have this great, 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 great interview that we have with our bow tie, the Reverend Jeremy L. Williams. And so the Reverend Jeremy L. Williams is a nationally sought-out speaker. He is a millennial visionary, gifted teacher, published author, and Bible PhD candidate at Harvard University. Hailing from Huntsville, Alabama, he continues to expand his horizons and live the mantra of his ministry, which is to dream better dreams. Pastor Jeremy has traveled the footsteps of the Apostle Paul in Greece and Turkey, studied religion in Morocco, Africa, and climbed the Great Wall of China. He has been blessed to earn degrees from some of the world's leading universities, Vanderbilt for his bachelor's degree in religious studies and economics, and Yale University for the Master of Divinity. He knows eight languages, y'all, including biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. He has served as senior pastor in New England, written two books, Can I Have This Dance and Wireless Discipleship, and is an awarded member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. It's also important to note that he is a recipient of an FTE fellowship. He is a CME who loves the Lord and is passionate about making people aware of who they are in Christ and who Christ is in them. And so without further ado, we welcome on this show just two pearls, our very own bow tie, Reverend Jeremy L. 
Williams. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. We're so Hello, glad to Pearl. have you. <laughs> I'm so glad to be here with you two pearls and all of these other pearls. I'm I'm excited. We're so glad you're with us. And so, Jeremy, we're just going to jump right into it. So you are soon to be this world-renowned Bible scholar in New Testament. We're going to just speak that into existence as you are a Harvard student. And so, um, Jeremy, could you give us some context as we're getting ready to talk about Matthew 15 and the Canaanite woman? Can you tell us some history and some background and some information about Matthew, the book and the gospel of Matthew specifically? Yeah, certainly. Matthew is a is a really exciting gospel, um, and and just kind of in in thinking about how how we we tend to think about um, the Bible as a text uh, and New Testament and the Gospels um, as as we all have, have discussed um, from our divinity school training that we know Mark was was the first gospel off of which the um, other synoptics Matthew and Luke. Um, used as a as a framing device, and and what's really interesting about Matthew and what it does to some of the way Mark tells stories, especially the story that we're going to look at today, is that Mark is, Matthew is really invested in in linking Jesus um, and the Jesus movement to its its Jewish roots. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, we see examples and how Jesus is is likened to Moses, where in the same way Moses gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, we see Jesus giving the Beatitudes and his sermon there to, to act as if he is a new Moses. And, and even in the, in the Beatitudes, we see Jesus um, extending, um, not destroying the law of the Torah, but building a fence around it, expanding what it means to be in covenant and in relationship with God. And, and so what Matthew's gospel is really doing in some exciting ways is, is helping, helping us to see how in the first centuries, how these different communities of, of different types of, of people who understood that they had relationship with the God of Israel, with Yahweh, with the temple, how, how these different communities, they each understood what it meant to be Jewish, what it meant to worship their God, they saw it in different ways. And one of these ways that Matthew helps us to see is how do we understand being in covenant with God with the new reality that Jesus Christ has come as a fulfillment um, of the Hebrew Bible, of the Tanakh, of, of those books that, of the Hebrew Bible, not just the Torah, but the writings and the prophets that, to show that Jesus is connected and that not only is Jesus connected to this Jewish tradition, but that Jesus as, as the epitome of the revelation of God is expanding this, this covenant or community to the whole world. So, so the gospel begins with this very, very particular um, understanding of who Jesus is, where he's coming through Abraham's lineage, um, through David, all the way to to the exile to him, and, and it starts kind of in this narrative of particularity, and it ends with a message to go ye therefore and teach all nations. And so what's really interesting um, about Matthew is that Matthew's audience, more so than any of the other gospel writers, is a Jewish context, which will come into play with the text that we're going to look at tonight. And it's also fascinating to think about how because of this context, 
Matthew is illustrating for us what it means to be in a to be in a community and to come into it in a different way to like be a part of of a particular Jewish identity but now after this new revelation to recognize how do we bring different factions different ways of understanding God different groups and communities how do we bring them together and how do we think about that because now the world is changed and time is different because Jesus Christ has has broken into time and so from a high level Matthew is is making these these really interesting connections between the Hebrew Bible and Old Testament and what God is doing now um, through Jesus and the church and in these communities and and we as as believers now find ourselves in that matrix thank you so much for that overview of the entire gospel you know I think it's really interesting especially what you had to say about what it means to be part of a community even as an outsider how jesus is linking together these disparate groups as the fulfillment of course of jewish scripture and uh you know all that we see in the hebrew bible uh, but also that desire from outside groups to be part of this new community that's forming and i think that that's Um, an excellent segue into the scripture that we're discussing, which comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, when Jesus grants the prayer or the desire of this Canaanite woman, but not after kind of giving her a hard time. So let's kind of just do a kind Mm -hmm. of a quick um, exegetical look at even okay. this passage here, you know, kind of what is it revealing about scripture and what is it revealing about this kind of insider outsider uh, nature of the gospel that you were just referring to? That That is really, that's really fascinating to talk about, especially with this Matthew 15 passage, which, which, which causes a, a lot of people, scholars and lay people included to, to scratch their heads and some <laughs> to, to wrestle with, with how to interpret and what's going on here. And what I think is really powerful about this series on the podcast and, and lifting up this passage and in light with Matthew's gospel is, is, is some of the ways that, that women help to push um, the narrative forward for the gospel, whether it's um, in the first chapter where we're included amongst uh, normally, uh, genealogies that only included men, we find women who are there to, who, who help make the narrative, not only help make it, but if it wasn't for the women, there wouldn't have been no begetting in the first place. And then at the end, those who are at Jesus's, um, who, who are there to see that Jesus has risen, are the women. And so here in this passage, um, in Matthew 15, 21, we, we also find um, this woman, this Canaanite woman, helping to push the gospel forward, to push even, if, if, we, if we dare say, even to push Jesus in, in pushing this gospel message further than, than even he, in this particular passage, would have intended to go. And that's really interesting in, in how we think about what to do with this woman whom Jesus gives a tough answer to, but she refuses to be subjected to 
to, to mistreatment and instead insist that she gets that which, which she needs and that which she requests, which, as I've been reading recently about some, some post-colonial thinkers and New Testament um, interpretation, what we see in, in a lot of ways is Jesus as resisting empire. But then in other places, we see um, how Jesus being a part of a dominated community um, is participating in, in, in recognizing how the logics of empire, that's not just about a, a foreign nation dominating a local one, actually um, has its logics, has its systems, has its forms of hierarchies and bodies, putting certain people over others, especially when it comes to gender, to say that we want to control you not only through military but by the way you think and by the way that you have your relationships, even to the relationships in your house. And so in some ways Jesus is, is operating as an anti-imperial figure, especially when the woman calls him Lord, which was a title reserved for Caesar. But then what we find in Jesus' response is that some of that logic of empire, of higher archiving and saying some people deserve certain types of privileges is how people who were under the, the shadow of empire had to negotiate and use some of this imperial logic, but then also how that was a form of, of corruption, of a form of, of, of missing what actually um, they should have been about. And so this woman, she actually acts as a true resistor, not only to to, to empire as as in Roman Empire by calling Jesus Lord, but she also even resists imperial logic that tells her that that she has a place as a woman, that she has a place as a Canaanite, and that place is not at the table. And she insists otherwise in this radical statement of of resistance that I will get what I need even if the logics of of oppression say otherwise. And so this this woman's dogged faith, <laughs> yeah, not to be um not to be too too much playing on words, her her faith actually gets her exactly what she needs in the face of all of these other types of oppressive forms that were trying to crush down on her. Yeah, I think that's really good, Jeremy. Um, I, I really appreciate you bringing that up because as we were talking, um, particularly as we see Jesus' growth as a person, right, pushing Jesus mm. further than what he would have intended to go even in his own self. So we see uh, this natural progression of growth. And as we all should know, Jesus is a young adult, right, uh, in his natural human mm-hmm. flesh and thinking about how we still have places to grow and places that we can still push even though we are invested and on assignment in our call with God. A lot of us um, who listen to the show are millennials and young adults and thinking about even though we have an investment in our assignment um, as gospel bearers, whether we are in the academy or in the church or whether we're in the nonprofit, we still um, have places that we can push past. So I think that's a really great a great point that you made. Um, I'm also really interested in how you said Jesus in this empire and this hierarchy and gender, um, including in the way that women should think. And so when you said that, it made me uh, think about Jesus' response, right, on empire and hierarchy. 
and you said that this woman, this Canaanite woman, she acts as a true resistor to the empire. And I think about women of today pushing the boundaries of the current church landscape and how sometimes we have created many empires within today's church societies and how Mm. some women, not all women, because some women participate in the empire um, and in the patriarchy, but there are some women who are challenging and pushing the notion of what does it look like to be uh, in resistance and to see Jesus participating in a mental empire within, within himself is kind of um, kind of jarring. And so with that, I want you to go a little bit deeper on Jesus' relationship with women. And so how do we see Jesus' relationship with the Canaanite woman versus Jesus' relationship with like Mary or, yeah, with like Mary or even his mother Mary, just the different women that we see throughout the Gospels. How does this woman in particular differ from other Jesus' reactions with women? That's, that's a really, really good question. One thing that I, I like to think about when I, um, when I do my, when I, when I, when I try to put on my, my academic hat to think about Jesus in these texts is, is, to, is to remember that, that the gospel writers are the ones writing these stories. And, and I think that's important because sometimes it's important that, that the Jesus that we see is a, is a Jesus that's being styled by the gospel writer to to tell a story and to tell a particular narrative about um about Jesus and and I think I did all that throat clearing there to 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 first kind of give a, something that is jarring that that in a lot of ways the way that Jesus is styled in the gospels is not very um is not very friendly and not, and not and it's definitely not kind of feminist in the way that we would want Jesus to be styled as feminist. And, and that leads to two different things. The first is that sometimes when we look at these texts, we have to recognize that, that the Jesus that, that we love and that we worship is bigger than, than some of these gospel portrayals. But then that leads us also to, to read these gospel stories and then to find out how can we use these narratives to fund an image of Jesus that, that is one that does love and support women and that brings them into relationships of equality and egalitarian status. So what I liked about one of the, the methodological strategies that you suggested is how do we think about um, Jesus portrayed across the Gospels? And so often um, a lot of scholars and thinkers go to go to Luke's gospel to see Jesus as much more, um, as much more in better relationships um, with women, whether it, whether it is the, in Luke, in, in which, which as I mentioned before, the Jesus image is a, is a portrayal of how the gospel writer is thinking. And so Luke, Luke has a number of prominent roles for, for women, whether it's Elizabeth, the mother of, of John, whether it's, it's Mary with, the Magnificat, and, and she is the one who bears God and is the one who says yes to God when the priest Zachariah doesn't, whether it is whether it's Mary and Martha um, who are hosting Jesus um, in Luke. or so, so these images, we, we find where Jesus is bringing women into his fold. As a matter of fact, in Luke's gospel, it's the women who actually bankroll the whole, the whole movement. And, and, and truth be told, if we looked at our churches today, <laughs> that is probably very similar because because the women are the ones who actually uh, push 
the gospel forward. Uh, and Luke is really, really prominent in illustrating this, whether we go in Luke Acts, because we know that, that's the, that those two volumes go together, where we see Lydia, who is, owns her own house, sells purple, is the first Christian in Europe, or especially in Macedonia. We, we see Luke elevating these stories of women and, and their relationship with Jesus and, his, and, and the resurrected Jesus and the Jesus movement. And so, and so in that way, through the Gospels, we can, we can find places where, where women are elevated, where their stories are told. And that can help us to get around um, some of these, these more difficult passages when, when we can see that the, that the Gospel writers potentially using Jesus to do some, do some damaging work. Because if we, if we, if we take some of the, this, especially this Matthew 5, 15 passage, on faith value, it's it, it's really difficult to to see Jesus talking to a woman like this. So then we pull it back and say, Matthew, what is what is what is happening here? And and then think about Matthew's um, narrative story in 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 how like an example is in verse twenty two, when he refers to the woman as a Canaanite woman, and as I mentioned in the first remark, how how Mark was probably written first. And Mark calls the woman a Seraphonician woman. And so Matthew kind of changes her location and race and ethnicity to fit her in, in, in his narrative in two regards. The first is by calling her a Canaanite woman, he's able to bring her into the, the biblical narrative, which, which is separating the, the nation of Israel and Jude, nations of Israel and Judah from Canaan all around them where the Philistines were and such, the promised land. And then secondly, what we find in calling her Canaanite woman is that um, is, is, is Matthew also wants for us to, to not see the, the Jesus movement as moving outside of the land of Judea until after the resurrection. And so, and so I say those two things to think about how sometimes it's important for us to look at these gospel writer strategy in saying how do we elevate um, how do we elevate women? And so when I read this woman as a resistor, and when I read her as going against the cultural scripts and and going against kind of um, this cultural production of evil, evil, as Emily Towns calls it, that she that she um, can't eat the children's food because she's no more than a dog. When I see that that she is is seen as a shouting um, ethnic woman of color, when I see Matthew using kind of this invective that is not much different than kind of Aunt Jemima images or or um, or the welfare queen kind of images, in order to make this point, then I'm able to wrestle with how how these tropes that are being used, these negative productions of this woman, are not the way that the good news has to be told. And that in spite of kind of this negative racial overtone that Matthew is doing, that the gospel breaks out, and this woman, this black woman, is able to, to go through all of these negative invectives and she is able to have a faith that even impresses um, Jesus himself, that goes against and turns the whole logic of, the, of this particular passage on its head, that illustrates that these negative 
stereotypes and these negative impressions and this evil, um, hegemonic, fantastic imagination that it is that it has no validity because even Jesus has to look at this woman from Matthew's gospel and say, your faith is great and let it be done for you as you wish. Okay, so you have said a lot. There are so many different directions that we could go in in terms of a conversation about, you know, critical ethnic theory, about post-colonialism, about uh, gender and disrupting empire. Uh, But I think before we go in that direction, uh, you've said so much about even just the composition of the Gospels and these different kinds of understandings that each Gospel writer has of Jesus and even when you were describing the book Gospel of Matthew earlier, you were discussing, you know, the particular audience to whom the gospel writer is addressing this book and, you know, kind of what some of the larger theological goals of this gospel are. So I think before we go any further, it might be helpful just to kind of talk about, um, especially the four gospels as a whole, since we're talking about, you know, Jesus and Jesus' relationship with women. And for those who might not know how do we even get to these four Gospels? How do they come to be composed? And just a quick rundown of, you know, you've already talked a lot about the Gospel of Luke, but in Mark and in John, what do you see as the different ways in which Jesus is interpreted and how the relationships with women are playing out in those Gospels? I think that, since you, as you mentioned, we talked a little bit about Matthew and, and Luke. We start with Mark. Um, Mark is the shortest Gospel, and as the shortest Shortest gospel, uh, it or more original stories, and and it's and it's very um, streamlined, and 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 it, and it captures the idea of of Jesus as this apocalyptic prophet who is eagerly anticipating the reign of God to break into the world, and that it's coming to an end, and he goes to to Jerusalem expecting for for the end of time, and and winds up on a Roman cross. Um, and to that end, Mark's gospel, the original gospel, didn't have a, didn't have a, um, didn't have a real ending. I mean, it just ends at the tomb. And so, to that end, the, the 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 powerful role that women have as the as the first preachers in Mark's gospel, um, those parts of of the narrative are are not as prominent. Um, and so, and so, one thing that's really really good about the other gospel writers who came along, especially Mark and Luke, is that they they lift up and they bring out these these stories of women. One of the, one woman's story that does make it into Mark's gospel is the woman with the issue of blood, who who had been for twelve years she um, was seeking medical attention and and was not able to to heal her hemorrhage. But then she touches the hem of Jesus' garment in a way that that pivots and and reorients Jesus and the gospel and her faith heals her, as, and she becomes this, this epitome of what faith looks like. So the Gospel of Mark provides that, and then Matthew and Luke, they, they use that story, and they, they take it even further. And also in, in Mark's Gospel, uh, there's another element where, where a woman highlights. It's in Jesus' last week where there's a widow, and she gives her, her might, her all, to the temple. And, and, that is, and that's a significant passage in Mark. Because this woman, giving her all into the institution of the temple, which around the time when Mark was being written was destroyed, it, it illustrates how, how this particular woman is, is a representation of, of true piety. But, 
but it also illustrates the problem when, when piety is linked to corrupt and incorrigible institutions that they will that that ultimately those institutions will fail people like her and those institutions themselves will fail. And then Jesus goes into his, his many apocalypse in Mark. In in John, um, which is not synoptic like the other three, the, the other three, Matthew, Mark and Luke, I call it synoptic, as you all know, and I'm sure you I'm sure that the pearls listening have heard this. Um, and synoptic means they all have the same view. John is not synoptic. He has a very different view. And, and, and to that end, some of the roles that, that women play are different, whether it is at the very beginning of the gospel, Jesus' first miracle is urged by his mother Mary when, when, he, when she compels him to, to turn water into wine. And, and he says, it's not my time. And then, and then she tells her, she tells the, her, her, the servants around her, um, in the words of Nike, whatever Jesus tells you to do, just do it. And so, so Mary coined that before Nike put on a, a national campaign celebrating Kaepernick and Serena Williams. Mary was the first one to say, whatever he says, do, just do it. We also see in, in John's gospel the, 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 the narratives pushed forward by, like, the woman of Samaria, the woman at the well who, who talks to Jesus, and they have this powerful exchange where he explains to her, what worship is about and how, how God is into the business of, of destroying borders, that people don't have to worry to worship here or there because God is a spirit. Those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. And then it's in John's gospel at the resurrection where he sends, where Jesus, when he's risen, sends Mary Magdalene to the disciples as the apostle to the apostles. She is the one to send the news to them that the Lord has been risen, and so and so that's that's a powerful that's a powerful notion because the the first preacher, the first Easter preacher in John's gospel is a woman, and so that that captures um, a really powerful moment from the beginning of the gospel. Jesus doesn't do any miracle until his mother, a woman, pushes him to the end. The good news of his resurrection doesn't happen unless a woman goes and tells the disciples who were quaking in their boots. And so that's, that's, a, that's, that's a Cliff Notes version of, of the other two Gospels that we have d- dug into tonight. That's so rich. That is so rich, Jeremy. I, I see what you did there. You know, with the, you know, the recent uh, Nike ad, I see what you did there. That's what this woman is doing in the first place by even approaching Jesus. She's mm-hmm. literally believing that he as an individual can do something different, not just in her life, but in this world, in this nation, in the current context of what they're being in, right, uh, in the empire. He literally can literally change the game, and he will, and he did, right? It's risky for her to even approach him. She's mm. without covering. She's by herself. She's literally talking to him, and it's like, woman, yo, that's not a cool thing to do. But she's doing it anyway, and she's bold in her approach. So with that, and because you brought up the Nike ad, I thought about um, how many people were so angry and disturbed and decided to burn their stuff because they're like, oh, Nike is getting political and Nike is um, supporting a racialized movement, um, i.e. Black Lives Matter, and taking a stand. In this text particularly, not just with gender, but you mentioned it before, but how does race play into this text as a big 
self-esteem. So we know that her being a woman is one thing, and we know that her gender plays a huge role in Jesus' response, right, in his clapback, his snapback, right? But also, mm-hmm. what does the fact that her being a Canaanite woman in this text, right, in this gospel, Matthew labeling her as Canaanite, uh, being of uh, African descent, right, it, to, to an extent, right? So what does that mm-hmm. do for this text, knowing that she is not only woman, but she is now black and she is racist, mm. she is colored? So what does mm. that do for Jesus, who is ontologically black, as James Cone mm. tells us, He's Mm -hmm. ontologically black. So what does that do for not only his experience, but for the lived experience of now us in 2018? What does that do when we see into the race of this text? Mm. Thank you. Thank you for that question. This is a really rich conversation. That's a really rich question. I think that if if I could could just appeal back to to make a couple steps from post-colonial stuff to what I see in this passage, the the logic of of empire often gets replicated by those who are subject to it, and so if we know that we know that like all of these texts were written by people who were subjected to the Roman Empire, right, which created um, an idea of Rome against everybody, <laughs> Rome against the world. That type of logic gets broken down and carried in the people who are who are lower, the people who are who are trying to make an identity for themselves. And so they use the same kind of logic rather than saying we all can be somebody. They use the same type of logic and say that we are going to build our identity off of who, who we don't want to count as people. We build our identity by saying they don't exist and they're not a real people, so we are a people. And so we see in verse 24 when Jesus talked about how he was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so in this way, the Gospel of Matthew, and who puts these words in Jesus' mouth, he, he is, in effect, using the same type of hierarchical, supremacist, nationalist logic that the, that the Roman Empire is using, that we have to take care of ours and kind of everybody else doesn't, doesn't count. And, and so there's the same type of dichotomy that's set up between Rome and others, that's set up between Israel and all the people on the outside, particularly Canaan here, same type of logic that, that trickles through, um, through Western imperialism that sees the rest of the world as its orient or, or, as, or as subjects to be conquered. And it's the same type of logic that operates in, in, in American, America's second sin, which is slavery and race. And I say that's the second sin because America's original sin is this genocide of its indigenous people, which is operating also under the same logic. And so, so this logic of destruction in order for me to have an identity that you cannot have value in order for my life to have value, that black lives can't matter because my life is based off of an evaluation that negates the value of black life, that in this passage, Israel and its lost sheep are the only ones who can receive this salvific message, is, is, really, is really problematic, especially when we 
recognized, especially as people of color, especially as folks on the underside of oppression, as folks who 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 are not on the on the top side of hegemony, we identify more with this Canaanite woman, this sister who instead of of bowing down and and, and, and cowing down to all the forces and all the oppression that's pushing her down, when she decides to to rather than than just allow her daughter to to die and rather than to to stand for this flag of Roman and 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 and, and Jerusalem centered um, nationalism, rather than stand for that anthem, she takes a knee and raises her fist and raises her voice and starts shouting that that even even if this system of oppression is going to continue to not say other lives matter and say that my life doesn't matter, I have a need. My daughter has a demon. My my child is being being tormented by a demon and whether that demon is 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 some metaphysical reality or whether that demon is is police officers with guns in the street or whether that demon is drones knocking a uh, drone shooting Palestinian children or whether that demon is is people in Flint still not having clean drinking water or, or whether whether that, that, that demon is, is continually to create continuing to create a glass ceiling above above women's heads that, that they can't shatter to the point that rather than elect a woman in some places they would prefer to, to put a, an orange demon in office. It's 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 fascinating that that what we can find here is that that same logic of racial difference that that that, that sees somebody as who is other as insignificant and and I need for them to their life not to have meaning for mine to mean something is very prevalent here and this woman this woman who is oppressed this woman who as you mentioned from from Cone's perspective is black ontologically oppressed this woman who 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 we don't know about a man or, or a husband around but that doesn't matter we don't know if she has a female lover we don't know about this woman but this woman what she does is she forces Jesus to say let it be to you <laughs> whatever you wish and it's that radical type of faith from from that that the woman has helped us to understand this intersectionality of of race and gender being double minority triple minorities that allows a perspective that can be transformative to the entire system that if we take Jesus as God, that'll make even God change God's mind. Well, sir, you, you went there. Uh, I love this line that you said right at the beginning of your response to Portia's question. The logic of empire is often replicated by those who are subject to it. And I think that even that one sentence is at the heart of post-colonial theory, at the heart of black feminist theory, of woman of color feminism, of critical ethnic studies, uh, and clearly uh, we also see it playing out in the gospel. So in some ways it is a tale as old as time, and it is powerful to see the way that this woman just shatters those walls. So, Jeremy, we are so appreciative to have had you in this conversation with us about this Canaanite woman's faith. We look forward to having you on the podcast again. And, of course, 
in the future to being able to read your scholarly work because you are making a difference both as a minister and as a burgeoning scholar. So will you please let our listeners know if they would like to connect with you to learn more about your ministry or more about your academic work? How should they go about doing that? Thank you so much, Portia and Jamie, for this opportunity. To, and I'm glad to be a bow tie. Um, I need to add that to the bio for next time to make sure that that, that is a part of, of of what goes in when I go places. So, so thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, so if people want to reach out to me, I am, I'm on social media. I'm Jeremy underscore MDiv. Or if you want to find me on Facebook, Jeremy yet. L. Williams. You have to put the L in there. I tell people because my mom wasn't that creative. There's a whole lot of Jeremy Williamses on Facebook. So, so make sure you put Jeremy L. Williams. Or you can email me at Jeremy underscore Williams at G dot Harvard dot edu. And, and so I'm really excited. I thank you for, for being interested also in my scholarship, which I'm trying to think about Acts and biblical studies and how it can help for us to, um, re- to, to imagine a world without prisons. And and that takes on questions of mass incarceration and such in, in America by thinking about biblical text and and antiquity. So so y'all thank so that so y'all can be looking out for that. Hopefully it'll be something that can help help us to, to get closer toward toward liberation and freedom and resistance. So thank you so much. Thank you for all that y'all do. Thank you for these great shows that y'all put on that keeps us that keeps us spiritually nurtured. Well, thank you so much. And that work uh, that you are doing on Acts and connecting it with our current mass incarceration crisis sounds excellent. I would love to see even just your reading list because <laughs> I'm sure that's quite oh, yeah. diverse being of biblical studies and uh, writing about kind of our current situation. It sounds like it will be work that is useful in so many disciplines in the academy. And, Jeremy, thank you again for being on the show, and remember to avoid the clip-on bow tie. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, Pearl. So we had a really superb conversation with Jeremy. We are so grateful to him. He is indeed one of our bow ties, yes. And so it is just so great always to have him on the podcast. We are so grateful. So as our petty Pearl, just recalling our conversation with Jeremy, uh, what I want to say is petty is in this era where everybody wants to be woke, where everyone wants to, you know, be socially aware, socially active, what is really petty to do, as Jeremy said, is done in this scripture, which is to allow the logic of empire to be replicated by those who are subject to it. And I don't know what that looks like for each and every one of us, but I will say that the work that Jeremy is doing is important because I think it highlights some of the discriminatory practices that even happen by people who are marginalized. And a lot of us are marginalized in one way or another. But what we cannot do in our quest for justice and liberation and freedom is to put down others. And so this scripture, I think, provides us with an opportunity to think more holistically about the people around us. And to think holistically about ways that we are going to refuse to be subsumed by empire, not only by, you know, refusing to allow the empire to crush us, but by not replicating those same patterns in the world around us. Some of us have the privilege of education, of gender, of, you know, perhaps economics. And it is our opportunity to try to overturn destructive forces in the world, not to replicate them. So that's what I'll say is petty for today. So let's keep that in mind 
And uh, thanks again to Jeremy for joining us for this episode. Tune in in a couple of weeks. We will be hearing from yet another guest about this same scripture. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Just Two Pearls. And you can email us at adventures at just2pearls.com. And remember, cultivate the pearl within you.